Well, good evening again. It's nice to, to see everyone again. And as we look at, continue to look at heavy questions and heavy topics and the hopes that we're preparing for the arrival of Christ, um, and maybe in the world, in the way that the world does not think about preparation, right? But it's the way Christians that we're called to prepare for for that arrival and for that day. And so, two weeks ago, we asked the question about what does the Bible say about death? What does what does death mean for a Christian? And last week, we asked the same question about judgment. And what will judgment day be like for the Christian? And what hope do we find on that day? And so the final, final two things and the traditional last four things are heaven and hell. And so tonight we'll ask the question, what does the Bible say about where we go when we die? Uh, but before we get to that question, We'll begin with our service, and again, I want to open up with Psalm 103, and I will read it all, and feel free to follow along, or just to listen. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless God's holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all God's benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the grave and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like an eagle's. O Lord, you provide vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. You made known your ways to Moses and your works to the children of Israel. Lord, you are full of compassion and mercy slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You will not always accuse us, nor will you keep your anger forever. You have not dealt with us according to our sins, nor, repeat, nor repaid us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is your steadfast love for those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so you have compassion for those who fear you, O Lord. For you know well how we are formed. You remember that we are but dust. As for mortals, their days are like the grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it is gone, and its place shall know it no more. But your steadfast love, O Lord, is forever with those who fear you. And your righteousness is for the children's children, for those who keep your covenant and remember to do your commandments. The Lord's throne is established in heaven. God's dominion rules over all. Bless the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who do God's bidding, who obey the voice of God's word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts of God, you servants who do God's will. Bless the Lord, all you works of God, in all places where God rules, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And we continue on 238 with our service. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
God of all mercy and consolation, come to the help of your people, turning us from our sin to live for you alone. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit that we may confess our sin, receive your forgiveness, and grow into the fullness of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Now, so as I introduce this evening, the big question for me is exactly that. What does the Bible say about where we go when we die? What happens? And so before I get into this topic, I do want to say first, I think it's important that we're careful not to speculate too much. Uh, there are many, many books out there, especially that have been published in the last decade or so, that talk about near-death experiences, uh, people saying that they've been to heaven or they've been to hell, uh, and they write about these experiences. Uh, and some of that may very well be true. You know, who's to judge? Who's to say? But I think as Christians, we have to be careful not to put our hope on anything that's not secure, anything that we're not sure about. So some of those things may be helpful to you personally, uh, but I think when we're talking about the foundation of, we of our hope, we want to look at first, what does scripture say? Right, and so I'm going to try to be uh, limiting myself to really to what scripture says and not speculating. Right, we all grew up with popular images of what heaven might look like or what hell might look like, uh, whether that's on a cloud with an angel and a harp, right, or of Satan in hell with, with a tail and horns and, you know, flames and a pitchfork and all of that. Uh, and some of those images, again, they might be symbolic, they might be helpful to us, uh, but as far as what we're going to say for sure, what our hope is, I would say let's stick to Scripture uh, before we begin to speculate. So, first, I want to kind of dive into, well, what does the Bible, especially what does the New Testament say about heaven? Uh, and this is a more complicated question than it seems. Because in the New Testament, heaven itself, as that word's used throughout the New Testament, or that idea is used, heaven's actually a two-step process. And so the New Testament's major concern is not necessarily about going to heaven when we die, as we kind of imagine it. But the New Testament's biggest concern is about how we're going to join Christ in the final resurrection of the dead. Right, and that's, that's echoed in the creeds that we say every week. Right, that we don't necessarily say anything about the heaven we go to when we die, but we do confess that there will be a resurrection of the dead and that there will be life forevermore with Christ. Uh, and so we kind of have to look at different contexts and different situations and how that's used. Okay, And that's not to say that there isn't heaven we go to when we die. And so that's kind of the first step in this 
step process that I'm talking about. And so the first way we use the word heaven and, and the way that the idea and the concepts used in the New Testament, heaven is a kind of intermediate state before the resurrection, right? That when we die, right, that we are with Christ, that we're in God's presence, that we're conscious of that, but yet that's not our final state and our final being, right? Our final state is being resurrected like Christ. Our body and soul are united, and we have a glorified body like his. Okay, but the Bible does speak about this intermediate state, where we go when we die. And so there's different kinds of languages and images that are used to describe that idea and that state. Uh, so the first, the first scripture I wanted to look at was in the book of Philippians, in the first chapter. And I'm looking at verse 22. Actually, I'll start at verse 21. Uh, been probably a verse that's pretty familiar to you. But Paul here is writing to the Philippians, and he says, For to me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Right, so Paul gets at this idea here that right, to live is Christ. To live is to live in Christ's love, but to die is to gain. Right, to die is still to be with Christ, uh, and it's still gain. Right, and so right away, we have this idea that when we die, we're going to be in God's presence. Okay, and Paul again addresses that in First Thessalonians. So I'm looking at chapter four, verse thirteen. Okay, so in Thessalonians, there's this question among the Thessalonians about what has happened to those who died? Because they've heard this preaching and this teaching about the final resurrection. Right? Paul says that this final resurrection is our hope. And so the Thessalonians are worried, well, what about people who have died? Have they missed this resurrection? They missed the resurrection of the body. Okay, so Paul's addressing their concern here. So in 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, so, interesting enough, Paul uses a couple of 
interesting phrases here. So in verse 13, I'm reading from the NRSV translation. Uh, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died. Uh, the Greek here is actually more of a euphemism, but those who have fallen asleep. Right? And that's a metaphor, a euphemism that comes up in the New Testament several times. Right? That death is kind of a state of peaceful sleep. And that's not to say you're not conscious or you're not awake. Right? But that it's, and, and I mean, and we use this language too, that when we die, we go to our rest. Right? And so Paul does use this language of resting in the Lord. Right? So when we die, the heaven we go to is first off a place of rest. But then Paul uses this phrase later on that the dead in Christ will rise first. Right, the dead in Christ, right, which implies that you are somehow still in Christ, even in your death. Right, somehow we are made conscious, we're made aware, we're in his presence in our death. Uh, and so there's a lot of philosophical debate on that about, well, what does that mean to be dead in Christ? And so there's a technology metaphor that some people like to use, which is that it's like when we die, our software is loaded on to Christ's hardware. Uh, that even apart from our bodies, right, our minds and our souls, our spirits, they're given their being in Christ. Right? And so we're very much alive, but we're in Christ. Right? And so at the resurrection, as Paul says here, that's when our software, so to speak, will be reunited with our glorified body uh, forever in the Lord's presence. But to me, Paul seems very clear here that you know, this time after we die, this intermediate state that we're waiting for the resurrection, it's clearly a joyful one. It's clearly one where we're in Christ's presence it's one where we're resting. We're given rest from all the hardships, all the tribulations of this life, right? That that's taken away and we're given peace. Uh, one more from the book of Revelation in chapter 6. So here's an image that John gives us in Revelation of the martyrs, the Christians who have been killed who are now in heaven. So I'm looking at chapter 6, starting at verse 9. So when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign, Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, until the number would be complete, both of the fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters who were soon to be killed, as they themselves had been killed. All right, John gives this image of martyrs who are in heaven, and they're asking the Lord, how long? How long until all things are made new? How long until the world is set to right? Uh, how long until 
we're all reunited once again? Right, and the answer is soon, but rest a little longer. Right, and so that's really the dominant image in the New Testament of the heaven we go to when we die, this idea of rest. Right, there's certainly a sense of comfort, of rest, of being in God's presence. Uh, the other image that, that we might be familiar with is that of paradise, right? And that's the language Christ uses on the cross to the penitent thief, right? He says, surely today you will be with me in paradise. Right? Uh, and that word paradise, it's an old word from Babylon. It's an word an old Iranian language that means garden. Uh, and so the word paradise has these images, these feelings, connotations of being in a garden. Uh, and so as Christ uses it to the penitent thief, it's almost as if you know there's a sense of what we lost in the Garden of Eden is restored in God's presence. Right, so this idea of true innocence, um, this idea of true purpose of truly living in God's presence. Okay, and so all of those, all of those images, I think, are good and helpful, and all images we can, I think, put our hope in. Right, that those who have died in the Lord are in a place of rest. Right, they're in a place of paradise. They're not striving they're not suffering there's no more illness no more sin but they're resting in the lord right and in some sense they're also waiting they're waiting for this day of resurrection when all of us together body and soul will be reunited amen so it's rest and it's waiting but it's paradise in our Christian tradition, there's also this idea of heaven as the beatific vision or the beautiful vision. Uh, and it comes from this idea that Paul has in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And again, verses you're going to be familiar with. Let me bring it up. So in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says, for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Right? But Paul says there's coming a time when we will fully know. Right, and so all of us ask questions in this life. Why did this thing happen? Right, where was God when this happened? We have questions about God. We have questions about our faith. Right, but the Apostle Paul says there is coming a time when we will fully know. Uh, but a lot of ways that this has gotten interpreted traditionally is that in the presence of God... Right, we will be made as perfect as we can be as finite beings. 
Right? We're never going to be infinite like God. We're never going to be omniscient, um, omnipresent. Uh, but as finite beings, we will find perfect happiness in God's presence. Right? So we will know God perfectly because, as Paul says here, we'll be face to face with God. Right? And, and God doesn't have a face. Uh, but we'll be in God's presence fully. And we'll be able to stand in God's presence. And we'll be able to love God perfectly. Right? And so loving God perfectly is the true source of all happiness. Right? All of us who are seeking happiness are truly seeking God. Right? Because, the, because God is the source of everything good, everything beautiful, and everything true has its origins in God. Right, so, I, I often think about music in this regard. Uh, if you're sitting in front of an orchestra at a symphony, or there's other music that really touches you, really speaks to your heart, really speaks to your soul, there's something divine in that. There's something really beautiful and good in being connected to that music. Right, well, heaven, in the presence of God, is like that moment, but for eternity. Right, heaven is like being connected to that beautiful music forever. Right, or if you're a more visual person, right, let's say you're up on a mountaintop and there's a beautiful landscape. You, know, you have a beautiful view that you're looking over. Right, when you're looking at that beautiful view... There's something different about that moment. Right? There's something that connects with you. You say, that's beautiful. Right? And that moment is special. Right? But that moment of beauty originates in God because God is the source of everything good and beautiful. Right? And so we take those little moments, right? like the music we connect to, or a beautiful landscape, or a beautiful sight, and say, that is what it is to be in the presence of God. Right? And right now, as Paul says, we get that dimly. Right? We get it in bits and pieces. But our own sinfulness clouds it out. Our own limitations cloud it out. Our own distractions. But to be in the presence of God is to have none of that distraction, none of that limitation. Rather, it's all the time to be in the presence of God of that beauty and that goodness. Right? And so when we don't have sin, we don't have death looming over us, and we only have life and goodness, right? we live in that beauty forever. And so maybe that's the most hopeful way to think of this idea of rest, um, is that we're going to be in God's beauty. Right? And, and those beautiful moments we have in this life will be with us forever. Okay, so that's the first the first way that heaven is used in the New Testament is that idea of an intermediate state where we go, where our souls are awake as we wait for a resurrection. Uh, but it's also heaven is also used and more often in this way in the New Testament. Heaven's this new Jerusalem. Right? It's the new heaven and earth. It's the reunion of our bodies and our souls 
and a glorified body and life everlasting in this resurrection. Okay, and so the first thing to say as we talk about the resurrection of the dead, which we confess every week in the creeds, it's not simply a revival of our body. Uh, it's not simply like Lazarus coming out with the same body um, or like the others in the Bible who were given life. Uh, they were revived. Right? But in our resurrection, we're, giving, we're given a different kind of body, a glorified body. And so the image we want to think about is the body that the risen Christ had after the resurrection. Right? It was very much tangible and physical. Right? Christ was able to be held, to be grasped, to be hugged. His, the wounds in his hands and his sides were still there. As Thomas felt them. We see Christ in the Gospel of John eating a meal right, with the disciples. He eats fish with them and bread with them. In the Gospel of Luke, he eats bread with the men on the road to Emmaus. You know, so the, there's this very physical body, but yet it's not limited in the same way that we are. All right, we see Christ walking through a locked door. All right, we see him basically kind of translocating. He's one place here, then he's gone. He's one place and another. Um, and so in some way that we can't exactly explain, our resurrected, glorified bodies are spiritual, physical bodies. Uh, they're not quite like what we have now. They're not quite just reviving this, but they are physical. Uh, but they're not limited in the same way that we are. Uh, we know for sure they're not limited in illness. They're not limited by the prospects of death. Right? But they're bodies that will last forever. Okay, and we, we talked about that a little bit our first week when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, and you can go back and look at that if, if you're interested. Paul talks about that pretty extensively. Um, about what that will look like. But I want to focus more here on this image of heaven as the new Jerusalem, uh, the new heaven and the new earth. So I want to look at Revelation again in chapter 21. And I'm going to look at verses 1 through 7. So John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people's. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
to the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. And then flipping ahead a little bit to chapter 22 and verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So this image of a new Jerusalem, first thing to notice is that it's coming down. John sees, sees this new holy city coming down. And the significance of that is that it is not just a spiritual place, right? It's not just a place where we're floating around as a soul. It's not a place where we become angels. It's not a place where we're just floating around on a cloud playing a harp, right? But somehow it's heaven and earth intersecting. And so John uses all of these very kind of physical and earthy Notions about what this is going to be like. Um, and so we can kind of want to imagine a mix. It's something physical and it's something spiritual, right? But some of the other language here that John uses uh, the streams are flowing, there's trees of life, right? It's again a reminder of the Garden of Eden. Um, It's something pure and something perfect and something holy. It's something made new. Uh, And so all of the beautiful things in this world are given to us without the corruption of sin and death, without decay. They're given to us in a more perfect way uh, where we will enjoy them. But the other language here, right, that there will be no more tears, Right, there's no more death, no more pain, no more illness, and that we will see God face to face. Again, we will live in that beautiful moment of God's presence forever. Uh, and it's just such a beautiful image, and such an image to put our hope into. Right, and so that's that's what I think we can say for sure about heaven. And it's not a lot. You know, it's not going to answer every question. Um, and it's not going to give us a perfectly clear picture. Uh, but what the New Testament does tell us is that being in God's presence is a very good thing. It's a very beautiful thing, a very peaceful thing, and a very restful thing. So that's what we can put our hope in. Uh, what kind of images we come up with after that will change person to person, right? But the hope that we have is that it's good, right? And that's, that's all we can say. And again, without speculating more than that, I think we can put our hope in that.
that when we die, we will be with Christ. We will be in God's presence. And that's a good thing. So then, I have to kind of turn the page then and ask the other side, well, what can we say about hell? Or what does the Bible say about hell? Uh, and, and I think the Bible says less about hell than we imagine. Um, and there's no question to me that the Bible does teach that there is a place of final judgment where those who reject God's love are in some kind of condemnation, that they're in some kind of torment separate from this image that we get here. Uh, and so there are really kind of two main images in the New Testament uh, that give us this idea of what exactly is hell. Uh, the first thing to, to know is that, again, there's this idea that it's a two-step process kind of deal. Uh, there's the question of what happens to those who do not die in Christ. And then there's the question of, well, what about after the resurrection? Right, and so without speculating too much, um, I'll just point to what, what the Bible says um, and leave it at that. So the really first image that, that Jesus uses a lot, and I'm going to give you an example because he uses it a bunch of times, so this is just one. But I'm looking at Matthew chapter 23, uh, verse 33. Jesus is speaking judgment to the Pharisees. And he says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to hell? Uh, that's, that verse is interesting, but it's not quite as simple as our translation makes it. Uh, the word for hell here, and uh, the, the word that Jesus uses, I think 10 or 11 times in the Gospel of Matthew for hell, is the word Gehenna. Uh, it's not Hades or anything like that. It's Gehenna. And so Gehenna is used a couple times in the Old Testament uh, and in some other places outside of Scripture. But it seems like Gehenna was a place that was a trash dump outside of Jerusalem. Uh, and supposedly it was kind of like a burning trash dump. It was always kind of up in flames one way or the other. Uh, it was separated from the city. It was something else. Okay, and, and so Christ uses this image of Gehenna, this kind of trash dump, as the image, as the negative image of God's judgment. Right? Those who are not declared to be one of God's are sent to a place that's something like Gehenna, like a trash dump. Uh, and so I don't think we can read too much into what's the actual torment of hell like from that. But I think Jesus' point is that it's something separate and it's something unpleasant. It's something not beautiful. You know, so much of our imagery of hell is really a place that's fiery and flamey. Uh, and a lot of that comes from uh, more literary places like Dante's Inferno, 
Uh, but, but the biblical image here that Jesus uses of Gehenna, it just suggests that hell is something unpleasant. It's not something beautiful like we've talked about. It's not a place where there are no tears. Rather, it's an unpleasant place. Okay, and then again, flipping back to Revelation, the same chapter where I was in Revelation 21. Looking at verse 8, so this would be after the resurrection. What, what is God's judgment for those who are not in this new Jerusalem? But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Right, And so John here calls it the second death. Uh, and so the idea, whatever it is, it's something that's out of seeing the face of God. Right? It's something out of that beautiful image. It's cut off. And so those who are there are cut off. Right? There's a chasm, a separation from that beautiful new Jerusalem to something else. Okay, uh, and the image here is that it's unpleasant, right? It's fire and sulfur. It smells bad. It burns. It feels bad. You know, should we take that literally? I don't know. Uh, but, but that's the idea, right? It's unpleasant. And those two images are really the major images of hell in the New Testament. St. Paul doesn't talk a lot about hell as a place. He talks about God's judgment. Um, he talks about what's to be revealed. But not a lot about the place of hell. And so, without speculating too much, I will say those are the images we get of, of the negative aspect of God's judgment. Uh, and so a couple questions then always come up naturally, which first, you know, the Bible has these images of hell, well, who's in it? Uh, and, and I don't think it's wise to speculate about who's in hell or who's not in hell. Um, God's ultimately the judge. That's what scripture clearly says. So it's not helpful for us to speculate um, and to ponder, I think, but rather to trust in a gracious God that he will do what's right and what's just and all things will work toward what's good. And so, I, you know, it's, it's easy to say, well, Hitler's in hell, in hell, Osama bin Laden's in hell. Yeah, okay. Um, but we don't want to speculate. You know, the Bible just simply does not give us a whole lot of room to say exactly who's saved, who's not here we know that those who are in Christ are in Christ. They are in God's presence. Um, apart from that, you know, we say our, our hope is in Christ. Apart from that, I don't know that speculating is helpful. The second, image, the second question, though, that often will come up is, well, how does a loving God send anyone to hell? 
right? How does a loving God send someone to this place of separation, to this awful place? And so I think the most useful image is C.S. Lewis's image that hell is a place that's locked from the inside, right? That those who are in hell ultimately want to be there because they don't want to be in God's presence. Right? Those in hell are interested only in themselves. They're interested in only destruction. They're interested in causing pain. Uh, and so only being interested in that, only being about that, is not compatible with being in God's presence. Because as we've seen, God's presence is the place of ultimate beauty, ultimate love, ultimate good. So someone wants to reject God's love. They want to reject what's beautiful. Right? Then that's, that's ultimately their fate. Right? And so it's not so much that God wants to send people to hell as much as you know, their will puts them there because... They don't want to be in God's presence. Um, and so I think that's, that's a useful way to look at it and think about it, that the doors of hell are locked from the inside, right? That preserving the dignity of human will means that if someone truly rejects the goodness of God, that they're not subject to being in that goodness. All right, so I'm not going to speculate further, um, but I hope that did kind of give you something to think about. What does the Bible say? What are some of the images? And again, to do the Christmas tie-in, right? It's a reminder to us that Christ did not take on the flesh. Christ did not come to this world just to be a good teacher. Right? He came to save us from death. He came to make it possible for us to be forever in that beautiful place in God's presence. And so we trust in him. And Christmas, Easter, all holidays, all days, we trust in him. And we trust that he is victorious over death. And that's what we celebrate. Right, so I'm continuing on page 239. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God promises to heal us and forgive us. And so let us confess our sin in the presence of God and of one another. Continuing on 240. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For self-centered living, and for failing to walk with humility and gentleness. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For longing to have what is not ours, and for hearts that are not at rest with ourselves. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For misuse of human relationships and for unwillingness to see the images of God, the image of God in others. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. 
for jealousies that divide families and nations, and for rivalries that create strife and warfare. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For reluctance in sharing the gifts of God and for carelessness with the fruits of creation. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For hurtful words that condemn and for angry deeds that harm. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For idleness and witnessing to Jesus Christ and for squandering the gifts of love and grace. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. And God, who is rich in mercy, loved us, even when we were dead in sin, and made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Almighty God, strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit, that Christ may live in your hearts through faith. Amen. And now the peace of Christ be with you always. And I invite you to take a moment and greet one another with signs of God's peace. And now gathered together by the Holy Spirit, let us pray as our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And the almighty and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bless you now and forever. Amen. Go in peace. Christ is with you.